Tonight I want to speak about seeing our life through the eyes of the Dhamma. When you watch the news on TV, they often will play a video clip of the newsworthy event. Um, you know, some 30 second clip about something happening that was considered newsworthy. And they show this. And then for the next three minutes or 30 minutes, you have all these talking heads on TV trying to tell you how to understand what you actually just saw. Now you saw it for yourself. You see the clip, you see what happened. And yet these spin meisters have their point of view or their angle of understanding that they try to lay over the actual event to sway your understanding in their direction. And after you listen to 30 minutes of commentary about what you actually saw for yourself, you don't know what to believe. You don't know who's right. You, get, you, you can often be more confused or you agree with the ones that you believe in. Well, our life is not unlike that. Life happens. Experiences are happening all the time to us uh, that our mind is commenting on. And when we start to practice awareness, we start to notice all these spinmeisters in our mind. Mom, dad, to begin with, and you know, peers and teachers and, and others that we feel aligned with or opposed to. And often we lose touch with our own understanding of what this experience is, what it means to me, what it, what it, how I would understand it. And all we have is these shouting commentaries in our mind of what this should mean to me or does mean to me. And we can be very confused. We can really lose touch with how to understand the experiences of our very own life. We can ask where these uh, spinmeisters come from, and we can see many of them from our conditioning in the past, some of them from our study, and some of them from our own um, personality. But what we're offering here is kind of like the no spinmeister view. It's the view that the Buddha took, or the Buddha came to in looking at the events of his life. And I say it's no spin. Well, it is a spin, actually. But the Buddha was very clear in articulating what his bottom line in the viewing and analysis and understanding of events is all about. The bottom line for the Buddha is, is this suffering or does it lead to suffering? 
or resist the end of suffering or lead to the end of suffering. And that's his, the lens through which he saw the events of life, the things that happened to us. And through his own observation of his experience, he came to articulate what is known as the Four Noble Truths. Now the Four Noble Truths weren't invented by the Buddha. They weren't thought up philosophically as, oh, this is a nice way to think about things. But rather it's an articulation of what the Buddha saw and understood through the lens of, does this lead to suffering or does it lead to the end of suffering? And the first noble truth is there's suffering, which if you paid attention to your experience today, you can answer that question in the affirmative. There's suffering. There's pain in the body, there's pain in the mind, there's restlessness, anxiety, frustration, disappointment, self-judgment, anger, aversion, desire. You don't have to look too hard. It's pretty obvious that there's, there's suffering. And the Buddha said, well, okay, what is the cause of this suffering? And through his, I would have to say, very perceptive uh, understanding, he came to articulate the second noble truth, which is, well, all of this suffering is caused by clinging, <coughs> hanging on to views and opinions, hanging on to experience, hanging on to emotions, hanging on to anything that's not happening now. Okay. The third noble truth with Buddha articulated was, well, if there's this suffering caused by clinging, is there an end to clinging? And he confirmed for himself that there is, that there is an end to clinging and therefore an end to suffering. And the fourth noble truth is his articulation of the path of practice to be developed in order to realize for ourselves the end of clinging, the end of suffering. So that fourth noble truth is known as the Noble Eightfold Path. And what we're doing here in this retreat, everything we're doing here is part of the Noble Eightfold Path. Because the Noble Eightfold Path is essentially about three different trainings of the mind. And the first training is the training in morality or sila, which we are undertaking by abiding by the precepts. Now, we went over the precepts last night and they seem pretty, pretty obvious, you know, not harming through killing, stealing, sexual misconduct or sexual activity here, um, right speech or careful speech and not using intoxicants. Well, most of us aren't dealing, aren't having a struggle with the first, killing, second, stealing. Maybe there's some torments in the mind about sexual activity or sexual energy, but pretty much under control. But this fourth one, right speech. Mostly we're in silence. 
you'll have an opportunity tomorrow, starting, starting tomorrow in your groups, to speak about your experience in practice. And it will be important for you to really assess what it is that you're actually experiencing so that you can report, tell us how it is, and we can uh, understand your experience and, and offer you some, some guidance. But another part of the keeping the precept of right speech here is in the uh, writing of notes. Now, because we're not speaking, sometimes we let notes serve as our voice. So writing notes is just like speaking in this situation. And if we're not careful, we will act out our tormented mind of aversion, judgment, obsession, compulsion, uh, disrespect in the writing of notes. And we can do it quite anonymously. We don't have to sign notes here. But the impact is in your mind. If you're acting out these unskillful, unwholesome states of mind, you're far, far away from actually practicing awareness. So let it be a cautionary tale that we've asked that the uh, office ask you to indicate on the outside of any note that you write who it's to and who it's from, so that anonymity is no guarantee. It's really important to watch your mind and watch how you act it out physically, mentally, and verbally, or through notes. The consequences to yourself are not insignificant. That's the first training that we're all engaged in here. And the second is the calming of the mind. Just being here in a secluded physical place away from home is quite calming. We just don't have our usual distractions. But we actually have a restless mind that needs to be secluded. Physical seclusion is not the same as mental seclusion. And so our practice here, as Mark Uh, guided us this morning is to just settle into paying attention to the present moment's experience, getting interested in it, and really seeing if we can track moment by moment what the experience of this moment is. And to the extent that we do that and we establish some continuity of mindful awareness, then the mind calms down. It's not so restless, it's not so agitated, it's not so reactive. It's just being with the way things are. And as Mark acknowledged, if you're just caught in the idea of pain, it can be intolerable. But if you turn your attention to the actual experience of discomfort in the body or unpleasantness in the body, it's often much more tolerable than the idea of it. So this is the development of of mindfulness. The first practice of sila, watching your speech, is of course restraint. The second training 
of the Eightfold Path is developing this continuity of present moment awareness or mindfulness. But the Buddha understood that even those two, even if we were careful in our speech and actions, and even if we were able to track our minds, moment to moment experience, we still often don't understand our experience correctly. And it's because we haven't seen for ourselves and understood for ourselves the way things are or the way things have come to be. And so this is the practice that the Buddha called insight or vipassana or the practice that leads to the development of wisdom. Now I'm getting to the main point of the talk here. While we're here practicing living in harmony and we are practicing mindful awareness to track our moment-to-moment experience, it's in the development of our understanding of experience that is going to free our minds from suffering. There's a, um, a quote that I like to read about that. It's by um, Mark Epstein, who's a um, Buddhist psychologist, psychiatrist, maybe. Anyway, he, he, he studies a lot, he practices a lot of um, mindfulness. And he says, the Buddhist view, the Buddhist understanding, has consistently demonstrated that it is in the perspective of the one who suffers that determines whether a given experience perpetuates suffering or is a vehicle for awakening. It's in the perception, the perspective that we take on experience that will determine whether we suffer or not. And to work something through means to change one's view or to change one's understanding. If we try instead just to change the emotion, we may achieve some short-term success, but we're still remain bound by the forces of attachment and aversion to the feelings which we're struggling to be free of. So he really points to the, the work that we're doing here, is paying attention to the present moment, but coming to understand the present moment in a way that doesn't cause us to suffer. If you're paying attention in a way that does cause you to suffer, we would have to say you have the wrong view of that experience. There is a way to understand that experience which does not involve your suffering. And that's what we're developing through the practice of insight or vipassana. Coming to know how to understand our experience. And this I will call right view, or this is what it's called in the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path. Right in this sense means it's right for ending suffering. If it's a wrong view, it's wrong because it leads to more suffering. It's not a kind of a metaphysical right or wrong. It's the view from the Buddhist perspective of does it cause suffering or not? If it does, unskillful view. We could call it unskillful view. If it leads to the end of suffering, we could say that's a skillful view.
So tonight I want to speak about many different skillful views that will support your practice here. Sariputta was the Buddha's second to the Buddha in wisdom. And so he was very erudite in his explanations of what the Buddha often taught that monks didn't understand. Sariputta would then go into more detail to explain them. And one time he was asked by a group of monks, how do we establish this skillful view within ourselves after having heard from the Buddha how important it is to have? And Sariputta said, well, there are two elements that are necessary for establishing right view within yourself. And the first of them is, you have to hear what the right view is from someone else. Now, this is a kind of a confront to we educated Western uh, students who think we can figure it out for ourselves. Because a lot of our training, a lot of our conditioning is, is all about problem solving. Yeah, our whole educational system is about learning how to solve problems. And so we're very good at believing that we can look at a situation, analyze it, come up with a solution, and solve the problem. And the Buddha said, or Sariputta explained, that is not possible. In this endeavor of disentangling our hearts from suffering and the causes of suffering. But in fact, we actually have to hear it from another. Let me give you an example, because it's kind of counterintuitive, you know. If we only had our own sensory observation to rely on, we would see that the sun rises in the east over there every morning. It traverses the sky and it sets over there in the west every evening. From our direct perception of that experience, we would say the sun revolves around the earth. Right? That's, that's the understanding that we would all come up with. And that's the understanding that was prevailing for a long time. But there have been those among us who've looked at that experience and also other data understanding the, the, the way the stars move in the sky and the way the moon moves in the sky. And they came up with a different analysis that said, no, the sun does not actually revolve around the earth. The earth spins on its axis, creating the appearance of day and night. And in fact, it's the earth that revolves around the sun in the course of a year. Now, we've all heard that teaching, haven't we? We've all heard that the sun doesn't revolve around the earth. The earth spins on its axis. And every one of us in this room believes that the earth spins on its axis, creating the appearance of day and night. There isn't anybody in the room that believes their own sensory observation of the sun revolving around the earth, right? We heard the right view and we believed it. Well, the same thing occurs now. It's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? But we do believe it. We have absolute faith in that belief. Now, the same thing is happening with the 
right view of the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha said, this is the way to the end of suffering, or this is what leads to suffering, this is what leads to the end of suffering. And it may be very counterintuitive to what we currently experience. And so, Sariputta said, we need to hear what right view is. And the second element of establishing right view in our own heart is to pay careful attention. To be very wise and skillful in attending to our experience, seeing it through the lens of skillful view. Okay. The Buddha taught the Dhamma. The Dhamma is the truth. The truth, not with a capital T like metaphysical truth, but the truth as in what is your experience? Because what your experience is, is the truth for you in this moment. And to study the Dharma is to study your experience, to, to really be with your experience, to know the truth for you in this moment, moment after moment. All that occurs in this body and in this mind is natural. There isn't anything that occurs that is unnatural. It's all lawfully arising due to causes and conditions, causes giving rise to their effects that we experience as the body and the mind. Sometimes we can think this is not supposed to be happening. You know, happens a lot. This kind of pain I'm experiencing shouldn't be happening. This kind of emotion I'm having, I don't want it to be happening. And yet, it's not accidental. Nobody's foisting it off on you. Nobody's making it happen. It's happening due to lawful causes and conditions. The reason we pay careful attention is to understand the nature of these experiences. To understand the naturally occurring forces that give rise to these experiences in our body and mind. Much of which we don't understand or we don't understand correctly because we didn't have teachers that knew. We didn't have parents that really understood how and why the body is the way it is, how and why the mind is the way it is. And so they offered their, you know, the best advice they got from their parents, who got it from their parents, who got it from their parents. And we're living in the opinions, views and opinions of people that really didn't know. And so when we experience what we do in the body, and we experience what we do in the mind, in their emotions, we have a pretty questionable view of how to understand these experiences correctly. So even when we pay attention and we experience what we do, you can see the mind has all kinds of opinions. This shouldn't be happening. I like it. I don't like it. Why is this happening? Who's making this happen to me? And we think that maybe we're responsible or we're not responsible. And we don't know why some of the emotions arise that we experience today. And certainly some of the sensations that occurred in the body. We don't know why they happen. To, to pay attention as we do here through mindful awareness is to begin to learn 
how to observe our experience with interest so that we can begin to understand for ourselves. We don't need the explanation of our parents or our teachers or our friends or our neighbors or our partners. We can understand for ourselves, but only if we pay careful, continuous attention, looking at at least having heard what the right view is or what a skillful view is. Things that occur occur due to causes and conditions. That sounds pretty obvious. You know, all of us have experienced and can confirm that when we've experienced something in the past, it often conditions how we will anticipate experiencing it in the future. If something causes us pain in the past, if we anticipate it in the future, we kind of expect pain. If something in the past brought us a lot of pleasure and we think about it in the future, we think, oh, it's, it's quite likely to be pleasant. It's pretty obvious that the past conditions the present, the past conditions the future. What's less obvious is that the future conditions the present also. How can the future, which has not yet happened, condition the present? Well, let me just ask you, why are you here? We're here because we have some understanding or some faith that if we do this practice, we'll suffer less in the future. That anticipation, that knowledge, even that faith, that wisdom, that understanding that in the future we'll suffer less is conditioning our being here, practicing as we do today. The future conditions the present. And if we look at all the conditions that lead to this moment being the way it is, it would include everything in our life. But mostly we don't pay attention that way. Again, this mindful observation to develop insight and understanding is to begin to understand how and why things arise the way they do. So as Mark mentioned this morning, it's really important as we do our practice to bring this quality of interest into our observation. Not just to try to make something happen. I want to calm down, or I want to follow the breath, or I want to kind of sit still, or I don't want to experience any pain. Or That's not what the goal of practice is. And neither is the goal of practice to get rid of anything that arises, whether it's pain or frustration or disappointment, but rather it's to observe what's actually happening with interest to begin to understand it. To begin to understand how it arises, why it arises, what it conditions in the body, what it conditions in the mind, how long it lasts, how does it leave? Some of you may have experienced discomfort in the body today. And you saw it arise, you experienced it when it was there. Did you see it when it left? Did you notice how it left the body? You'd think that would be very important. Like, I really want to know how pain leaves the body. Right? 
so that when it occurs in the future, I can rely on my own understanding of how pain leaves the body and observe it in the present moment with interest to see that. Interest makes all the difference. Now, it's not just interest. If, we've, if we're interested with an agenda, that attitude of mind is kind of skewed. It's a little bit, it's a little bit, I'll, I'll observe this pain as long as it goes away soon. It's good to have the observation, but if there's this attitude of, you know, some, I got some agenda in my observation, there's hanging on, or there's aversion, there's desire, there's expectation. And those are not the conditions that lead to the end of suffering. So we want to monitor really carefully how it is, what kind of interest we're bringing to our practice. If we're trying too hard, trying to make something happen, we're trying to calm down. So you know, it's like, get excited so you can calm down. Kind of counterintuitive. So how do we do it? Well, we pay attention with interest to see the way things actually are, rather than how we fear they are, or how we hope and expect they will be, or how we've heard it should be. Many of us have read plenty of Dharma books, or we've heard of uh, others' experiences in meditation, and we have a lot of expectation. We just have a tremendous amount of hope that our practice will be a certain way, we have a lot of expectation that if I do it, this is the way, this is what I'll see, or this will be the result. Those expectations and those hopes and all of that knowledge of others' experience can really put a lot of pressure on our just willingness to experience and learn for ourselves the way things are. So we want to we want to observe those, we want to recognize those attitudes of mind that insulate us from being fully present with this moment's experience. So we want to be paying attention to the attitude of mind that we bring to our interests. No matter what kinds of practice we do in the Dharma, in the Dharma work, it's all about the mind. Whether we're keeping the precepts, whether we're developing mindfulness, whether we're taking the refuges, whether we're t- bowing to the Buddha, whether we're doing walking practice or sitting practice or service practice in your yogi job, all of these are Dharma activities to the extent that they, that we use them to cultivate wholesome states of mind, that we use them to cultivate this kind of pure interest, awareness, have faith that that's valuable, uh, to steady the mind, to calm the mind down, and to begin to understand. And in the process of cultivating all of these wholesome states of mind, or these skillful states of mind, through any of these practices, we have the simultaneous effect of preventing the arising of unwholesome and unskillful states of mind. The two cannot coexist. 
We can't be doubtful and faithful at the same time. We can't be aversive and equanimous at the same time. We can't be deluded and wise at the same time. And so to the extent that we cultivate the wholesome, skillful qualities of mind, we are temporarily or momentarily eliminating from our mind those forces that cause suffering. So it doesn't, in some sense, it doesn't matter what kind of practice you're doing, sitting, walking, doing your yogi job, bowing, chanting, doing mindful movement. As long as we're cultivating the wholesome, skillful qualities of mind while we're doing it, that's as good as it gets. And so we want to monitor as we go through our day, you know, the kind of the, the very Spartan schedule that we have, but as you go through your day, monitor what qualities of mind are you cultivating in this activity. Are you cultivating aversion? You know, you look around, you see other people doing this, doing that, and you get kind of, well, that's cultivating aversion. Or if you get, you know, you're sitting in the hall, it's nice and quiet, and you know, we've all settled in and started, and somebody comes stomping in the hall three minutes after they're supposed to. What are you going to cultivate? Acceptance and joy and equanimity. <laughs> you know, maybe compassion for them. Or aversion, you know, you know self-judgment or judging them. It's your choice. I mean, that, that's what we're working with. We're working with the mind. Now we know, and I'm sure you all see, have seen today, the default setting of the habits of the mind. You know, the mind just loves to whinge and whine and compare and, and piss and moan. And just, it just, that's welcome to the deeply conditioned mind. And we don't have to look, we don't have to go looking for it. It'll, it'll announce itself loud and clear. But as we see this reactive, these reactive states of mind, we have a choice. We can choose to practice awareness or we can choose to indulge in the conditioned mind. That's what practice is. This, this is, this is the very interface of practice. This is where we bring all of our effort. So I want to talk a little bit about right views uh, of meditation, the actual formal meditation. One right view, one skillful way of understanding what's happening is that in every moment, something is being known. In every moment, something is being known. What about all those times when we're spaced out not knowing anything? You know, we think there are periods of time that go by that we're not being aware, right? You know, you sit down, you start paying attention to the present moment, maybe you're using an object like the breath or the body or sounds, and you're trying to establish a continuity of awareness. You sit down, you start paying attention, and it doesn't take too long before the mind goes elsewhere. 
And often we don't notice where it goes. The mind wanders off on some train of thought and we're not aware that it's wandering. We don't know what we're thinking about. We don't know how long we've been thinking. We don't know that we're in a room. We don't know our meditation retreat. We don't know our name. We don't know our gender. We don't know anything. We're, we're lost in thought, right? We're completely not knowing anything. Well, not aware of anything. But sometimes the moment that that train of thought stops or that awareness arises in the mind again, and we see, oh, here I am. I'm back in Barry in the retreat, right, sitting. Okay. Sometimes we can take, we will see a quick, we'll do a quick review of where we've been wandering in our mind, and we can reconstruct the whole, the whole sequence of thoughts. You know, we wandered off into here, there, the past, the memory, the emotions, and finally arrived here. Something, some part of the mind was knowing what was going on, right? The mind was tracking everything that was going on, but we weren't aware of it. Isn't that, isn't that kind of amazing? Think about that. The mind has got is doing all this busy work of knowing everything that's going on and we're not aware of it. How does that happen? Right? I'm not the only one that that happens to, right? <laughs> I know I'm not. <laughs> okay, so this points to the ver- this this points to what we're doing here. We're not trying to make something happen to to know what's going on. It's going on. What we're doing here is cultivating the recognition of what's going on. Mindfulness is remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. Now, if I'm sitting here saying, okay, pay attention to the sensations in your hand. Got it. Okay, pay attention to the sensation in your right shoulder. Got it. Now notice this quality of sound in the room. Got it. If you're being guided to direct your attention to current experience, we can sustain this continuity of awareness pretty good. But when we're not being guided, we forget quickly. And we just space out. We just get lost and, and we wander off and, and we don't recognize, we're not aware of what's going on. So a large part of the first few days of practice on a retreat like this is learning to internalize the reminders. To internalize it. Put this teacher inside your own mind, the one that says, pay attention, what's going on? Recognize this experience. Recognize this. Or just ask yourself, what is being known? What's being known now? Now what's being known? And let your attention just openly receive with interest whatever's happening, whatever's being known. It can be physical, very gross experiences, very gross physical experiences. It can be very subtle uh, thoughts. It can be moods, assumptions, sensory contact like sounds or smells, feeling the humidity or the temperature of the room. Any of these Experiences are what are called objects to be known. Right? Now today you've noticed 
many different kinds of objects. Maybe the breath, maybe some other sensations in the body, uh, certainly have noticed thoughts, maybe moods or emotions. And if you're paying attention when you ate lunch or any of the meals, you notice sights, sounds, smells, taste, lots. There's just, there's just an infinite variety of objects that are being known. Is that practice? Dogs do the same thing all day long. They're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, you know. Are they aware? Do they know that's what's happening? Even like we. We can go through a whole day on automatic pilot doing all of those activities and not be aware. And you've seen some of that today. Being lost in thought while you're doing something else unaware. So what we're cultivating here is this recognition, this awareness of what's going on. There's no hurry. You can't get ahead of your mind. And even if you go fast, you you, you can't leave your mind behind. No matter what you're doing, your mind is there. You're doing the dishes, your mind is there. You go in the toilet, your mind is there. You're taking a shower, your mind is there. You're going to kind of sneak away for a while and go take a nap in in your room and kind of get away from the, the schedule. Your mind goes with you. You can't get away from your mind. So what we're asking you is, well, just pay attention to it. You know, be willing to, whatever you do, recognize what's going on. We keep the practice simple. We keep the schedule simple. Uh, we keep it really uh, not, not too demanding so that you don't have to hurry. You don't have to try to make something happen. You don't have to try to get rid of anything. You can just be simply with the body. Be with the mind. Just sit there, like, like a bump on a log, and just watch. There's plenty going on, if you're interested. The Buddha said, the Buddha gave a short discourse. I think it's called the short discourse. He says, everyone only experiences six things. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and some kind of thought process. You'd think... If we're only experiencing six things, we'd be able to track them, right? It's very difficult, isn't it? It's very difficult to know when you're seeing, when you're hearing, when you're smelling, when you're feeling sensations in the body, etc. But that's all that's happening. That's all that's ever happened. So we can keep our practice that simple even, just to recognize which sense door is being activated. Just ask yourself, which sense door is being activated? Well, eye door right now, ear door because you're hearing. Not such a strong odor in the room, so the nose door isn't being, isn't being asked to work too hard. But can we just track that experience that is being known? Seeing is being known, hearing is being known, understanding is being known. Objects are anything that can be known. And primarily the objects of our meditative awareness are our own body and our own mind. Now we may think, 
yeah, but when I hear that person come in the hall late, it's them I'm paying attention to, right? You hear that sound, and as soon as it goes into your mind, that sound is what you're dealing with. You may have the impression it's someone. That's your mind, too. So what we're dealing with is, is our own mental experience. So one way of kind of monitoring this in practice is ask yourself, are you aware of an inner experience, an internal experience, or an external experience? If you're paying attention out there to what you see, what you hear, what you smell, recognize that the smelling, the seeing, and the hearing is happening in here, in our own mind. Turn your attention to your own mind rather than getting lost in the objects outside of yourself. So we want to pay attention to our own mind and body. I've been trying to point to the understanding that meditation is the work of the mind. It's working with the mind, working with the interest of the mind, the energy of the mind, the awareness of the mind, the stability of the mind, the reactivity of the mind, the understanding of the mind, and bringing your attention to the mind in whatever it is that you're experiencing, whatever it is that you're doing, just to put the body through slow walking, for example, just to force the body to walk slow. You can force the body to walk slow. You don't have to have your mind there. I remember in the early years of practicing here, so I did a lot of walking in the room, out the, the upper walking room here. And you know, you, you start walking slow and you're lifting, placing, lift, placing, left, right, left, right, whatever it is that you're doing. And pretty soon I'd be Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola. And I was, I was really, you know, I was tracking it, but the mind, no understanding of what's going on. So kind of um, inducing a hypnagogic state to do your meditation practice, whether it's with the breath or walking or left, right, whatever it is, that's not working with the mind. That's putting yourself to sleep. So we want to really look at what is the energy we're bringing to, and what is the, the, how precise can we be in recognizing what this experience is with the mind. Meditation is learning to observe with interest. And we learn to observe with interest, or we're, we're interested or willing to observe with interest in order to understand. It's not in order to make something happen. I know some of you have a goal of maybe getting calm or getting clear or sitting still or having no pain or having no thoughts. Wow. <laughs> if you have those agendas or any like them, in your effort, you're attached, you're clinging, you're holding on. And the Buddha said, that is the cause of suffering. So can we bring an interest to observe the present moment 
without any other agenda than to see the way things are? Are you willing to experience this moment to know it as it is? And that's a good, that's, that's a good question in practice, to ask yourself, am I willing to experience this moment? Am I willing to feel with full awareness what the body feels like right now? Am I willing to experience the mind, whatever it's experiencing right now? Frustration, disappointment, excitement, hunger. Am I willing to experience that? And just ask yourself. You'll, you'll see. And if you are, you'll just do it. It'll happen. It's not like you have to kind of then decide to do it. It's like you'll be there. But if you're not able to, what else is going on? Some agenda, some striving, some fear of experiencing unpleasantness maybe? You know, when pain arises in the body, as, as Mark was mentioning this morning, oftentimes our idea about what pain is, what's happening to my knee, my back, is painful. But if we can actually ask ourselves, am I willing to experience this? Let me, just, let me just check. Do I dare? Do I dare to really get this intimate with my own body, with my own mind? Or when emotions arise, you know, sadness, some of you experiencing loss, or grief, or maybe frustration in practice, maybe some disappointment in your practice. This is our, this is our life. What is happening to us in this moment is, our, is, is the only experience we have of life in this moment. Are you willing to experience your life? You know, it's a question to ask yourself. Am I willing to feel what disappointment really feels like? And why not? None, all of us have experienced all of these emotions, all of these physical sensations, a lot already. We've experienced them without awareness, without understanding. What we're doing in practice here is to bring a willingness to experience them fully with full awareness. Oh, this, this is what's going on in this body. This is what's going on in this mind. And can we encourage that kind of willing interest to feel intimately present moment's experience? Or are we in a hurry to get to the next moment? We're in a hurry to get something, some, some meditative experience that we hope will happen. Well, if that's what's going on, are you willing to feel what being in a hurry actually feels like? You know, there is nothing outside of your experience that can't be known with full awareness. So it's not about creating some special meditative effect. It's about opening to the present moment and just allowing ourselves. Can I, can I allow myself to feel this? To know what's actually going on in my heart, 
in my mind, in my body, in the environment. As we learn to observe without judgment, without fear, without condemning, without expectation, without reaction, as we learn to observe all these experiences, we begin to understand something that can't be gained in any other way. You can't read about this in a book. You can't read about what we learn about ourselves from direct observation. If you read it in a book, that's somebody else's learning, not yours. That's knowledge, not wisdom. And so it's only through our own efforts that we're going to learn the truth about the nature of this mind and this body and learn for ourselves what suffering is and what suffering isn't, or what leads to suffering, what leads to the end of suffering. You know, there are, there are wild animals around here, whether they're deer or squirrels or whatever it is you happen to see. If I asked you, well, what's the nature of squirrels? You know, you could Google it <laughs> and find out everything there is that other people know about squirrels or deer or porcupines or raccoons. There have been some bear around here earlier this year. Maybe you'll be lucky enough to see a bear. That would be a new experience, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, how are we going to learn but through direct observation? If you, if you do happen to see a bear, just watch. Just watch. You'll learn something that you never, you, you can't read in a book. This is how bear, this is the nature of bear, or this is the nature of squirrels, or this is the nature of deer, whatever it is you're observing. And the longer you observe, the more data you collect, the more you'll understand how it is for them. And the same goes for yourself. The more you observe your own mind, your own body, the more you will understand. And when you move your understanding, when you move in alignment with your understanding, we suffer less. That's wisdom. If we don't understand, we'll continually be struggling with the way things are. But to the extent that we understand, through direct observation, we can stop struggling with the way things are. And this, the Buddha said, is the end of suffering. As we observe and learn to understand the way things are, we begin to see our life through the lens of the Dharma, through the, tr through the lens of the truth, through the lens of the nature of reality. And this is what we're doing here. Learning to observe our own experience, our heart, our mind, our body, our reactions, so that we can live in alignment with the way things are rather than in opposition to or struggling with, but to come into harmony, to come into alignment, and to be free of suffering. This is the work of the mind that we're doing here. 
we need to be patient because the conditioned habits of the mind are very deep and very strong. But we also need to be persistent because the mind is malleable. The mind is flexible. The mind can change. And this is the work we're doing is to change our wrong understanding of this body and this mind to the truth, the way things really are. And to the extent that we do that through our own direct observation, we'll realize what the Buddha taught, what the Buddha was pointing to. This is the way to the end of clinging, and this is the end of the way, this is the way to the end of suffering. Everything we've done today in our practice, from the refuges to the precepts to sitting, the walking, the service work, mindful movement, all of it has been in order to develop this understanding, cultivating those wholesome qualities of mind that will bring us closer to the end of suffering. So let's just sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. For as the Buddhist view has consistently demonstrated, it is the perspective of the one who suffers that determines whether a given experience perpetuates suffering or is a vehicle for awakening. To work something through means to change one's view. And this is the work that we're undertaking. So thank you for listening to the Dhamma. It's 8.30. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.